Hey, Andy. Hey, Jed. Hey, good to try uh, number two here at Wonky Folk. And then number one went okay, so we're back. <laughs> we're back. Uh, and, you know, family members were giving me a hard time that we didn't even introduce ourselves at all. Um, so maybe like, okay, 10 seconds each or 15. You want to go first? Just give a little background about yourself. Yeah, sure. It's entirely possible somebody might have watched that first episode and concluded, these guys aren't professional podcasters. Um, <laughs> Maybe uh, we're just impersonating the Muppets, you know, the, the guys at the, you know, in the orchestra, you know, above the orchestra or something like that. But I guess we need a little intro. So so give us, give, give me a little bit here. Yeah, we just jumped right in last time. So I'm Andy Rotherham. I'm a co-founder and partner at Bellwether. Uh, so I've been there since 2010. My background uh, is, is think tanks, policy, some research work, a lot of media work, um, uh, and I'm a state board member. I'm actually in, in the middle of my second stint on the Virginia Board of Education, and I, I write the blog edgewonk.com and do some other uh, media stuff, and I lead external relations at Bellwether, and I work on our policy uh, team as well. So, Jed, what about, what about you? Who are you? Who are you? So um, I just come from a family of public school educators, spent seven years in the classroom in Los Angeles, um, ended up authorizing for a couple of years in San Diego, had a chance to work at High Tech High for five years, just a great five-year run, and then um, uh, led this, the, the Charter School Association in California for 10 years, um, left about a little over four years ago, and have been really working to help however I can on national advocacy for charter schools. And that's included my service project to the movement, which is uh, this thing, uh, Charter Folk. But what I love most about the work is it gives me an excuse to stay in contact with great people. And Andrew, Eddie, you've been an incredible supporter of everything we've been doing. So thank you. And then it becomes natural to try something new. So um, this is fun. I'll just also, my, my last part of my introduction is I'm obsessed with the Sacramento Kings and it's baby light the beam, baby. This town is going crazy. So, uh, you know, my obsessions continue to grow as I get older here. Yeah. I mean, the playoffs, they have started. Our, we, our, uh, our um, uh, communications and marketing director, Andy Jacobs, a huge NBA fan. So I've already sort of seen productivity drop here a <laughs> couple of days. And because the NBA playoffs sort of seemingly never end. Like, what they, when do they end? Like, around Thanksgiving or something? And so <laughs> I guess we'll continue. This will continue for a while. Well, listen, let's go back to where we um, uh, left things, or one of the topics that we addressed last week in big, you know, uh, NBA city um, is, is Chicago. And, um, you know, we recorded on the day before the election. Um, and I think we, you know, made a mental note. Let's come back and just make some observations about whatever may, may have most surprised us uh, what would you, I mean, how are you processing the Chicago results? Yeah, I can't even remember if we made predictions. I think we both said it was going to be close and it was close. Um, and that it was, a, it was a little hard to tell. I think we, neither, neither of us are, are a Chicago expert. And honestly, when you talk to people out there, you heard there were people who were, you know, quote unquote, in the know, you know, connected politically, who had different takes on on which way it was going to go. And I think that's reflected. It was tight. Um, so, I mean, look, if, if uh, obviously... Vallis losing does send a message. It, it, you know, a lot of the race turned on on issues besides education, policing, and so forth. But clearly, if if that brand of politics had been overwhelmingly popular, it wouldn't have been a close race. Um, uh, and so clearly, like there's there's some thinking to do there. On the other hand, you have seen this happen elsewhere. So I guess my bottom line is when I look at a race that's that close, I'm I'm cautious to read too much into it. And say Vallis had won. 
and it, by the same margin um, that the Brandon Johnson did, I think it would have been a mistake for reformers to suddenly assume they had a mandate and sort of charge charge forward. They would have needed to listen to the message the voters were sending. And I think the message the voters are sending is they, they have conflicting priorities. They want um, different things. And, and there was a bunch of dynamics in, in the Chicago race, including obviously, obviously race um, that played out. And so I think like we'll have to see which direction uh, it goes. Brandon Johnson probably has an opportunity to pull some Nixon to China moves to improve quality of life in that city and schooling. But we'll see kind of how that happens with the coalition he's put together. What's your what's your read on it, Jed? Yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't extrapolate anything out from the results themselves. I think there were so many idiosyncratic things to the race itself. But what I do think is worth focusing on is just some of the changes to the political coalitions that seem to be coming together that I think are likely to sustain themselves and are becoming national trends. I've been writing a lot at Charter Folk about how the Los Angeles Teacher Union and the Chicago Teacher Union have really come together and been articulating a new vision for what uh, teacher union political strength could be. Um, and I think we've seen now in Los Angeles and in Chicago that race be run on, on, on political fronts. One of the things most interesting to me is how SEIU and the teacher union came together to win races and came together to you know do a strike in Los Angeles. And now we've seen SEIU and the teachers union in Chicago, which had previously been at odds together in the very same way. So that is something that I would imagine we're going to see people attempt to bring to other cities. It's not as easy as it might as you might first assume. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, and then the other one is just I found it very striking how the youth vote really broke strongly for Johnson uh, in the general rather than in the than in the primary. And, you know, that's just what I find perplexing or just protect, you know, potentially very interesting. What is it uh, that is resonating, especially with, you know, some of our young folk? I mean, we can we can we can chalk it up to simple progressivity of youth, but I think there's a lot more in it than that and worth us, you know, diving into when we have a chance to really see what the election results are. Yeah, I think so. And look, obviously, like reformers, particularly reformers of a certain generation, have not figured out yet how to talk to energized young people. And and you and I saying you and I have talked about sort of some of the quote unquote progressive positions are on education are actually like decidedly conservative, right? And 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 reactionary. But reformers haven't sort of figured out how to, how to pick that lock yet. Um, and, and there's a bunch of work to do there. We're, I know we're going to talk about Denver, and, and that's an example um, where that might be happening. We'll have to see. The other, uh, the other interesting thing about Chicago that I, I, I think we can't like move on from is just the scale of sort of violence in Chicago and gun violence is just unbelievable. And you talk to school leaders out there, just the presence of particularly handguns just in the life of schools and the, the number of incidents where they're finding them, kids are bringing them to school and so forth. Um, it's just, it's just, it's unbelievable. And it just sort of happens day to day and it's sort of background noise. And there's almost this attitude of like, que sera, sera. And then, you know, something happens like we talked about last time about, you know, covenant and so forth. There's obviously that's a, that horrifying school shooting and it galvanizes yeah, yeah. attention. But like the, the sort of just routine violence just does not garner the same attention. And it's really what is like it is in terms of the numbers, just catastrophic. And it's really interesting to see in Chicago um, uh, what can be done about that. And if, if there is or if it just this just turns into sort of, you know, again, sort of just you get end up getting a backlash because people feel like it's not being it's not being handled. And then the other thing in Chicago, I do. And you sort of alluded to this. If I were a charter school leader out there, I'd be preparing for pressure that may not be like pressure that's going to get headlines. But it seems, you know, the unionization efforts 
will certainly step up and there's going to be more pressure on those schools. And that's going to be how that community responds out there and, and navigates that um, will be interesting to watch. Yeah, I, you know, my my pessimism comes through in my in my saying that I don't think that those that are coming into power in Chicago right now have a vision for making uh, tr traditional public schools any better. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more doubling down. And I think we're going to see a lot more of adult benefit being the focus of most of the policy efforts there, which are, is only going to result in some parents having greater desperation for something else. And um, it's how do you remain a strong and vibrant, you know, charter school community um, wanting to be growing when the overall environment seems so hostile, but yet the need yeah. for, the needs for what you offer has never been higher than right now. It's it's a real tough dichotomy for people to to deal with right now. Yeah, I think that's right. And then one that we can move on to Denver. One other thing is it's just worth noting. I think on Chicago's all Vallis's concession speech that was a classy concession yeah. speech. It's yeah. becoming all too rare um, where, you know, I think yeah. you and I are sort of of a generation where you have elections, they decide things, and then you move on to the, and then you have another election down the road, rather than this sort of just constant acrimony and conflict that never stops and nothing gets done. And sort of, if it doesn't go your way, you just show up and argue, you know, in a, in a different, often, you know, more disruptive way. And I feel like you know, Val is just sort of one thing I think that 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 the older generation of, of politics has right is just that degree of of just civility and the way he sort of even chided people who were starting to, to complain about um, about Johnson was was classy and, and just un, it was sad that it was like it felt like such a throwback. Yeah. Well, I can't. Well, you uh, you leave the door open for one last conversation or comment on Chicago. Sorry. We're going to go to my hometown, Denver. I'm excited to talk about that, too. But um because Vallis, yes, I agree with you in terms of the concession speech. The other thing, though, I think from an education policy standpoint is what's striking to me is he's basically saying the same thing now that he was saying in 2005, 2006, 2008, 2011. There's very little evolution in what the reformers are bringing to places like Chicago. Um, and I think that, you know, Vallis defeated, being defeated here is if there's any, you know, <laughs> if there's any consolation, it gives the charter school world and the reform world to refresh what we're bringing forward. And, you know, I think we absolutely have to, because if we're going to win that youth vote, um, we're not going to simply win it by better political machinery, but we've got to have a better policy agenda to attract these people. Yeah, that's probably a whole future episode, because I I half agree. I mean, look, and we, you and I talked about this, I think, like, Vallis, Vallis is a guy... Um, uh, who you don't you don't bring him in to a super high functioning school system that just needs some some nudges to even take it to the next level. You you there's a reason the kind of places where he's been a school leader. You bring him in to really dysfunctional situations where where sort of governance, teaching, and learning it's all kind of it's all kind of broken. And he he gives it he gives it a jolt. Um, and that's kind of his skill set. And I think I think we do need that. There are a lot of places like that. Then there's other places that need different kinds of of leadership. Um, so I half agree with you, but I also think sort of some of these fundamentals, like we're not going to tolerate low performing schools, we're going to right size school systems, so dollars are aligned with effectiveness, like those things, like we, we, we have to, we also have to figure out a way to talk about them so those ideas don't go out of style. And I'm worried, like the part of what we have to meet the new, you know, meet a different generation, a different set of demands, like I'm hearing conversations yeah. now about like, you know, 
all this emphasis on grades and academics and, and, and kids learning and so forth is that's a problem. And we need to have a new, you know, we need to have a new area of emphasis and focus. And like that terrifies me because yeah. like, if, if, if it's easy to see how that could be a fashionable idea. And then you walk away from um, uh, you walk away from a focus on accountability for results, student learning, all of those things. And, and the unions are smart about this. They've started to wrap their demands in the language of equity, which has a, a very seductive appeal um, and, be, and people aren't sort of parsing me like, oh, what are they actually saying here? Um, and, and what's the actual, what would be the actual effect of this? Well, a place that's interesting along these lines is Denver. It's where we've been wanting to get to. Um, and it's fascinating how we have two strong charter school supporters who are now in the uh, mayoral um, uh, general election and um, speaks to Denver being well, again, maybe it's not right to extrapolate too much because there could be some idiosyncratic things that have led to this. For example, you know, was it nine nine progressives and two moderates, you know, in the primary? Right. And the two, you know, um, but uh, get me started. What are your thoughts about? Uh, and also, I mean, we we know Johnston very well, and you know, obviously, someone that a lot of charter folk have a great deal of respect for. But where, yeah. where would you go first in coming on Denver? Yeah, I mean, we like we 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 need like a ritual set of dis of disclosures here on this one. Like, I I sent money to to Mike. Um, uh, I've known him a long time. I think he'd be a great uh, mayor. He was good when he was in elected office uh, before. So, like, I, I'm not I'm not coming at this. Um, I mean, both candidates seem great. They're both supporters of of, of charges and so forth. But I don't want to. I I don't want to. I'm coming to this with a certain obviously perspective. Um, yeah, the big thing that my, my general take on Denver has been this idea that reformers are actually pretty good at winning when they get focused and there's resources and so forth. And so, like, what happened in Denver with the changes there, and this is under Michael Bennett and Bozberg and so forth, was pretty remarkable. And the school board, and you know, those were obviously really some contentious school board races and so forth. The problem was there was just, it wasn't sustained. It was a classic, like, okay, mission accomplished, and everybody kind of moved on. And the folks who didn't like reform and the teachers unions and all of this and people who didn't like charters, they all sort of didn't get that memo that it was over and they just kept coming. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of un it unraveled um, Denver. So that's my sort of and so my, my critique is basically the reformers got a little got a little fat and comfortable. But it seems like the shoe may that shoe may be on the other foot, I guess, mix metaphors, the the, the <laughs> fat shoe may be on the other foot or something. Um, uh that like, because what seems to have happened is the progressives just got caught sleeping and, and were not organized because you're right, you did. And, and so now it's opposed to Chicago, where coming out of the primary, the progressives could be like, yeah, here's our person we're all going to rally behind. Yeah. Like in, in, you know, if I it, when, when listening to progressives in Denver, they don't like either of these choices. Right. And so they're, you know, um, they're sort of stuck. And I think that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting dynamic. And obviously, you know, Mike has proven to be a reformer over the years uh, in public office on a number of fronts. And so I think I think, you know, there's a potential that Denver once again becomes a really interesting place um, on ed reform as, as it has been. But as you said, this is this is like your hometown. So, like, I, I'm, I'm giving you the I'm giving you the outsider. You tell me you tell me what's actually really going on there. Well, I, I can't say it at that level, but I, I can provide just the historical context and. Um, you know, my parents did not teach in Denver. They taught in Jeffco, which is right next door. And the striking thing for us, for me, is just how much better public education is in Denver 
25 years later uh, and and how little it's really appreciated that that is in fact the case. And it's despite that great track record of success, the changing political dynamics is, has led the Denver School Board to go in a completely different direction. I, for a long time, have said that, you know, the reform world and especially the charter school world needed to be more proactive in the creating of C4 political infrastructure to defend the wins that, you know, we had. And I think there's been a longstanding kind of distaste for political activity from the charter school world and a belief that things were going to be all right, right? This is Blanche Dubois, depending upon the kindness of strangers, somebody else will do it for us, right? And I think that Denver is one of the great, great um uh, you know, cautionary tales for us. What I really love about either mayoral candidate winning, uh, but especially Johnston, would be something of a feeling of like, hey, charter folk, it's okay to come out of the woodwork again, right? What really is our vision? Because we're still going to have a 07 school board that all this charter school, um, you know, operators are going to be concerned about. But to have, you know, a, a, a person at the mayoral level be able to drive a conversation. I think it's it could create some really interesting dynamics in Denver. And, you know, Colorado is one of the leaders now in the national charter school movement in terms of percentage of kids served, all sorts of really cool, th Jared Polis, obviously a big, big charter school supporter on the Denver side. This could really um, uh, auger, you know, just be a, a really positive sign that uh, uh, charters could regain momentum in the West. Yeah, and you mentioned Polis, I've always struck um, Jared's an interesting politician, interesting person. And I've always like, whenever the, the sort of mentioning starts of if, if either Biden doesn't run or who will ultimately succeed Biden on the Democratic side, I'm always surprised that Polis's name doesn't come up more. He's had a, he's sort of a, like a libertarian Democrat. I mean, how he handled COVID, I think was, was very popular and effective. And, um, you know, he supports charters and some kinds of school choice and just has a really interesting profile. And it's just I'm always struck, like, why when people start, the, he, he's usually not at the top of the of the list. And I don't he sh I, in my view, he, he should be He's an interesting politician, interesting leader. I think that, um, you know, something I've been writing about since you know, since 16 or so, well, I, the history I've been writing about is 2016 and 2017. 2016 was the. Uh, the election in Massachusetts against question two. 2017 is the NEA's new policy on charter schools. And basically what they said in that moment was it is not possible to be a Democrat and also be supportive of charter schools. Right. And so uh, Jerry Brown was really the last um, that was in, well, almost the last. I think that Polis still was under, you know, had already set his political relationships before the change in the NEA policy happened. So I think that, you know, Polis's story here is one that's very important to stay focused on. Um, I think so, too. Also, I would throw on that list, like you got like, I think Josh Shapiro in Pennsylvania will be interesting to watch. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's be interesting to see what they do in Massachusetts. But I mean, yeah, I can't argue the, the fundamental point that like, you know, that was the sign when, you know, winter is coming. Um, and and the Democrats have sort of seeded that issue and seeded the choice issue in general um, in some ways. I think it can prove uh, over time to be really unhelpful to their politics. But if we look at the West, Colorado, New Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Utah, Idaho, um, these are all places where charter school support, charter school momentum, reform momentum is very positive right now. Yeah. And I think it's possible for us to like hitch these wagons together, to use my Western metaphors here, you know, and uh, and perhaps drive a whole new narrative for our for the movement. Um, so we'll see how that plays out.
Yeah, no, that's, and I think also, look, there's some really interesting stuff happening at rural charter schools in the West. And there's yeah. some folks, Rob Saldine, he's a um, political science professor at the University of Montana, is doing a lot of work on sort of how Democrats can win with, with rural voters again and sort of re-energize that coalition. And I don't see how you do it without like a real economic opportunity agenda and, and schools and things like rural charter schools and school choice being, being a part of that. Again, I'm not speaking of things the Democrats have seeded. They've sort of just seeded the, the, the rural vote and that, that that's a mistake and it may be there may be some sort of signs of life in the mountain west um uh around around some of that over time well we focus a lot on denver but in colorado i mean we've got charter schools in grand junction and durango and fort Collins, up and down the you know the front range so it's one of these places where we've really seen a broad distribution of charter schools and it creates a political circumstance very different from if you have all of your schools only concentrated in urban areas but hey, I, I've known that you've wanted to like get to Title Line and um, some really interesting decisions coming out of the Biden administration this last week. Uh, do you mind if we pivot over there? Yeah, let's do that. Before we do that, though, I do want to, one other Denver thing. I just want to, yeah. because it's our podcast and so we can say whatever we want. You know, <laughs> a really gutsy thing that happened in Denver, and I don't know how, how close we follow the Rockies. They have a reliever. He's a guy named Daniel Bard. He used to be the setup guy for the Boston Red Sox. Um was out of baseball for a few years, uh, and then and then came back and has had sort of a miraculous comeback with the uh, with the Rockies, and it's just a great story. But what was really interesting at the beginning of the season, um, you know, we talk a lot about mental health in schools, and and this is a, a big issue. But like the country, still there's still sort of some stigma sometimes and so forth. And he was having some issues with anxiety, and he put himself on the um, uh, on the injured list, the yeah. fifteen the fifteen day list. And we, we, you know, I love baseball. It's people do. You see lots of heroics and you're like, oh my God, you know, gutsy plays and all that. But that was honestly one of the gutsiest things that I've ever seen a player do, especially given, you know, some of the aspects of the culture in that game. And then not too long afterwards, a guy from the Tigers uh, did a similar thing. And I just like, I, I am someone who believes that sort of those kinds of things have a cueing effect and they, and they, and they change. And I wish, again, you know, you know, I wish more, more influencers talked about um, ed reform and charter schools, but just on the mental health front, sort of seeing that. And like, if you had to sort of have a, a play of the week or, you know, sort of a, a gutsy move, I just think what, what, what Daniel Barr did is really um, uh, just really impressive and, and commendable as we try to get more attention on these issues of mental health. Well, my wife being a clinical psychologist, this is, this is our wheelhouse for sure. And um, I, I think sometimes, you know, blue left-leaning uh, charter folk uh, don't always pick up things that are happening elsewhere. It's the stigma in, especially in, in red context against getting yourself um, some psychological assistance. Uh, and then also the stigma, the feeling that, that uh, you know, conservative folk aren't going to find a psychologist who is, resonates with them across all these cultural issues. It just creates this structural barrier, right? And so, any high-profile person that is just going to be courageous and be upfront about what what their struggles are, I think, really, really helps. So, I, I, I appreciate you pointing that out. Yeah. So, um, on uh, on Title Nine, so uh, an interesting thing happened, and I think it's interesting in part because the administration, you know, they, they, they've had some some hard challenges, obviously, around the the economy, you know, some foreign policy things. But they've also had some relatively straightforward things in education. I think a lot of people would argue that they have, have potentially fun, fumbled aspects of the recovery dollars, um, this third-party servicing uh, process that they just went through. Um, uh, just a number of things. Maybe you know, a lot of people think student loans and, and how that, that's been handled and just the, the entire process 
of the student the student loan issue, not just the case that, that is at the Supreme Court right now. Um, and some of those issues actually weren't super complicated and they still managed to fumble them. But then you've got this Title IX issue of transgender athletes and sports, and they parsed it in a really interesting way um, that I'm favorably disposed to myself because I think it gets at some of the nuance where they basically said they're going to put out, a, you know, they put it out for comment, but that they, you can't have blanket bans on participation, but where you have to balance um, fairness and safety with inclusion, you can do that. And so some restrictions are going to be okay. And I think this is the kind of thing that a lot of people look and are like, certain things seem fair, certain things don't, all that. And then it matters a lot by, you know, things like age level, level of competition. Is this an elite sort of zero sum or just some other kind of like recreational league? Um, all, all of these sort of nuanced things that in this, in this sort of debate, yes, no, this sort of macro debate to sort of get lost. Um, and they have a policy that sort of parsed it. And, and what's interesting is, look, some people think, okay, they're, look, they're just playing possum and they're saying they're going to parse it, but they, they'll reject every single claim oh. that comes. I don't think that that wouldn't be a smart strategy for them uh, politically. And I think they, I think they know that um, it wouldn't be a smart strategy, you know, with Congress and so forth. So I, I actually take them at their word that they are going to, you know, and, and, and they're going to recognize there's probably differences between some sports. This really only matters when you get to zero sum levels where, you know, only a certain number of people can advance. That's, you know, get varsity level, elite level uh, sports. Um, and then, you know, college and, and so forth. And then people are going to take them at their word that they're actually going to parse those. And what they may be doing, and, and this is me inferring, is they, you know, they saw the Obama policy um, on Title IX and colleges just ended up in court constantly and lost constantly, right? And so yeah. What, what, yeah, and it was, so it was just one of these things. It was, it just, it, it became almost sort of a farce. And what they may be doing here is recognizing this issue is also in the courts. It's in the, it's in, it's in federal courts. Um, and recognizing that that's going to sort of play on this issue will ultimately be decided in the courts. And so they're just creating some space. But I just thought it was on a, on a complicated issue where there is an awful lot of activist capture and it would have been easy for them just to sort of just do the thing that, that everybody would have um, just do, just do a real straight down the line sort of red blue thing. Instead, they, they sort of they sort of parse some nuance. And I thought that was interesting, and I don't know if if that means sort of signs of life on interesting policymaking. I don't know if they're going to walk it back. I watched one interview with the secretary; he didn't seem like totally in love with the policy. So who knows? Um, but um, uh, that may have just been you know people give lots of interviews, and that may have been an impression he didn't mean to convey. Um, so who knows? But um, I think it's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting one to watch um, to to watch going forward. One of the um, uh, byproducts of, of working on Charter Folk is I've got subscriptions now to like, you know, 25 or 30 newspapers, you know, across the country. And I you know, just try and screen them out. But the headlines keep coming through. Right. And it was fascinating to see that first day. I think in the first like four hours or six hours, all the headlines were about, hey, the new um, uh, guidance, uh, you know, bans. uh bans any kind of you know discrimination right and then later before even the end of the day and certainly thereafter it started to get into the nuance wait a second yeah. make it things they will you know be opposed by the feds but here are some here's some areas where clearly you know we should be more flexible 
Um, and so yeah, total I, fog of culture. That first, that first few hours, right? It was like complete fog of culture war. Yeah, totally. And what was interesting is the guidance, the the proposed regulation, the way that the, the department's materials described it was actually pretty straightforward. The key, you could sort of see the key graphs. Yeah. So, like, there was a lot of like confusion, but. If, if you know, it's one of these things we try to teach this to like at least when I was in school, you learned this in elementary school, like primary documents, right? And yeah. it was like, it was everybody was sort of keying off this other stuff rather than just like the plain letter of, of what this guidance said. What I like about the guidance is that it doesn't um, necessarily erase a more agency across all of the public education. I mean, it can be that the political environment is so toxic in all these different situations that we really don't want to be talking about some of these issues. And if somebody took these issues off the table, maybe, you know, there'd be a value in that. Generally, that's terrible. Generally, we want decision-making uh, and discussion and nuance created at local levels. Um, and generally, what I've seen in terms of guidance coming out of, you know, Washington or guidance coming out of state capitals, you know, from across the country right now is state taking agency away from local school districts, from charter schools, from, um, from uh, you know, any operators of schools. And generally, that's just not set up for long-term thoughtful decision-making. And so I would say this guidance is probably a breath of fresh air along those lines. Well, look, I mean, as, as society evolves, you get these complicated questions and they, they necessarily, there's nuance and they're complicated and the devil is in the details. Um, and that's where you have to get in. And hopefully what we're seeing on some of this stuff is sort of the, the sort of, you know, blunt force sort of culture war stuff will give way to just more texture and, and, and nuance. Um, Cause I mean, look, I, li I live this to some extent. I think you've got like, you've got like, you know, 10 to 15% of people on either side who just are really struggling to live yeah. in community with others. And everybody else is sort of like an unwilling combatant in the, in the yeah. culture wars, sees the areas of gray, sees the nuance and sort of wants us to sort of parse through that as, 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 as best we can. But the media fixates on those loudest voices and they obviously are, are, are what drives um, or what drives politics. So this was it. This was interesting. And again, we'll have to see how it plays out a year from now. It could look totally different depending how they do it. And they, they could look, we, we could call it a guidance. It's a, it's a change, the proposed change to title nine. It'll go through a, a comment process. They'll issue a final version. Um, uh, and they could, you know, that could change as well. But like, it was, it was, it was an, it was an interesting it was an interesting sign of life because it came on such a political political hothouse issue, um, uh, where yeah. they've been all thumbs on some some more basic stuff, and this one they they really tried to find find some nuance. So I thought it was um, interesting. Speaking of all this stuff, though, the last thing I know we want to talk about is there's Supreme Court cases coming on yeah. religious charter schools. There was a case. Um, out of Washington State on on religion and schools, I think surprised a lot of people. The Kennedy case last year. There's, there's it, it's like there's a lot happening here, and yet no one seems to be paying very close attention. It's potentially like very precedent setting. So like walk us through like there's been a couple there's 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 been a couple of cases and now there's one up. Like what walk us through like what's going on and what do people need to know? Well, I think that um, you know there are a couple of cases that are that are working their way through the courts right now, and there's this North Carolina case um, where um, a dress code and requiring girls to wear skirts in, in a charter school is now 
uh, come all the way up. And it, we'll see if the Supreme Court uh, decides to take that case or not. The argument of those who say that uh, charter schools should be able to uh, impose this kind of dress code is that charter schools are not public schools. And so they have you know, greater freedoms to discriminate or whatever it may be because of that status. That's one wing of things. There are other things where we've had a main case and other things where it's questions like, could a charter school directly, uh, a, relig a religious institution directly hold a charter? And where that's being tested right now first is in Oklahoma. And um, and that this is one where just this last week, you know, again, monitoring the, the headlines, uh, the, uh, this, the authorizer turned down the charter school application from the Catholic diocese, um, but said, why don't you bring it back again in a, in a month and we'll see what, you know, if you can address some of our concerns. Um, but the thing that's just really interesting from my contacts in Oklahoma and elsewhere, it seems as though the operators who are proposing this charter aren't that deeply committed to charterness. Uh, they really are people motivated around issues of religious liberty. And so what we see then is that the charter school canvas really just becomes something that the religious liberty advocates can paint a picture on. Um, and my own sense is that from a, from a just an actual impact on school options for people, Religious charter schools, I don't think is going to make that big of a difference because I don't think that many religious institutions are going to be willing to deal with all the challenges and hassles of operating a charter school. And so really, this issue in Oklahoma is going to remain one that is uh, presidential for these broader religious liberty uh, issues. But what it does in terms of the core of the charter school movement, unless there's blowback, you know, from those precedents that like harm us from a political standpoint, I don't think it's going to profoundly change the profile of schools that, you know, are operating, you know, within the charter school space. So let me push on that a little bit. because one, one of the things I've always like 19 good charter schools get clobbered by that 20th. That That's terrible, right? And you, you live some of this in California when yeah. you're running the association, you get these, these sort of high profile cases and it's, look, it's a natural instinct. Like no one, no one reports on all the planes that take off and land every day, just fine. Right. But when, you know, something yeah. goes wrong, we all, we all hear about it. Um, so it's an, it's a natural thing. Do you worry that with this push in, it will blur the lines on what actually is a charter school and then you'll get some outlier examples, which will be used, you know, particularly used by people in the advocacy world to sort of paint a broad brush. It just does seem to me like, like there's some, when, when people are still actually learning what a charter school is and is not and, and all of that, that there is just some, the, the, the reputational and political risk almost regardless of the scale yeah. that this happens at seems, seems real. Yeah. So I think that, um, I mean, the likely collateral damage is in blue context when we've got uh, establishment aligned policymakers looking for the next excuse to sunset their charter school law or moratorium or whatever it may be. And, you know, we can see that if the Supreme Court and the Oklahoma case um, uh, confirms that religious institutions must be allowed to operate a charter if you choose to have a charter law, there are going to be several blue contexts where people are going to use that as the as the you know precipitating event for the next round of moratorium call. I definitely do worry about that, um, but I also think that um, you know a key thing is how does the charter school world? It's you know the operators and our funders and our policy supporters. 
how do we orient ourselves, you know, to to this reality? And um, and how much do we end up like taking pot shots at one another such that it becomes easier to um, to set us back with a policy loss? And that's why I think it'd be better if we were having more proactive conversations about what are the likely results of these cases and what are ways for us to orient ourselves that are consistent with our values um, such that we can stay together. Um, whether or not that'll be enough to withstand the attack that comes against us, I don't know, but we'll be stronger you know, than if we haven't had the conversation at all. Something we said uh, at the top of this episode, like we're, we're obviously we're, we're amateur podcasters, so I don't know if we actually even have show notes, but if we do, um, I wrote a piece last year on the main case and its potential impact that we could include. Because I guess I'm a little more, I, I'm a little more concerned than you that as you bring religious institutions into closer contact with charters, that the, the potential, uh, particularly for political risk, there is is real. And I'm, this isn't something I'm completely against. I actually, during the Clinton administration, um, uh, wrote a guidance on how you can. Uh, Religious institutions can can do more to uh, interact with with uh, with charters and support their educational mission. But you know the lines there, and the lines have become more blurry. The church-state lines over the last um, twenty years, and so I do think there's some risk there. And then the other thing that just is interesting is, I've always assumed when you start to do this, you know, one of the fascinating things about homeschoolers, and and I and and I'm not like a, one of these reflexive critics of of homeschooling. I've spent lots of time. I wrote an article for the well of time a few years ago on, um, on homeschooling. I think like it's, it's actually just a really fascinating part of the ed sector. Um, but one of the things that you often find is people have this vision of homeschooling as these individual kids or families, but they often homeschoolers work together in co-ops and they pool resources and they're very strategic about sort of taking advantage of different assets that exist in their, in their community. Um, and so one of the things I've always wondered is if you make chartering loose enough, You've got these groups of you'll go in, you'll see like 15 kids and they'll be all working and doing stuff. And if you say this looks like a school, you'll get a lot of pushback, but it looks a lot like a school or an alternative school in practice. And that that's going to be an attractive place, because if you can then get all the public money to do that same stuff, like what's the difference between that and sort of a small, you know, uh, scrappy or startup kind of charter school. So that's always been a place I've watched and I've wondered if these decisions the past few years might fuel that and, and create more intersections um, there. And and why I think all this matters is we're obviously having a big evolution on choice. Like the quiet story during the pandemic, yeah. just this explosion in choice policies. Um, the rhetoric about school choice, like, oh, it's, it's not happening, it's being rejected. And the actual like reality that like, could not have been more sort of discordant. It was crazy. And um, that this is a piece, this is a piece of that. We're going to start to redefine what choice looks like in these various choice options. You know, ESAs have become very popular. You've also got tax credits and, and, and other kinds of choice schemes. And that as this redefinition goes on, sort of where charter schools end up living in that new ecosystem politically is, is, an, is an important question uh, to where their support comes from and so forth. I, I think we've talked about, I don't know if it was on the podcast or just you and me, like it does seem like there's a scenario here when the music stops, charters will be alone without the chair. Yeah, I think uh, there's a lot more to dive into here. I'll just end with this, you know, this thought, which is, I mean, to some extent, my value in, in at CCSA after 10 years on the road, just visiting all these schools and knowing all these people was having a fairly good assessment. Well, well, 
what what are people what are folk going to think about this? Can we keep the movement together on this? Will it splinter on that? And by the time I left, I was right maybe seventy percent of the time, right? And I just don't think my intuition is nearly as good on national issues at this point. Um, but I my my I know that a schism that we cannot cross is if somehow we ask charter folk to accept the idea that charter schools can exclude kids for whatever reason, whether they're, they're gay or trans status, their religious status. And I think the same thing around employees too. If we can kick you out and you can't work here, that is going to be a definition of charterness that we just cannot endure. So my hope is that, you know, ultimately these court cases play out such that that remains a, you know, an option for us to like try to gravitate around. We'll see whether or not, you know, what draws us together is strong enough to hold us together. I think, yeah, that, I mean, look, there are so many interesting issues percolating up to the courts. I mean, I've been following very close. There's some issues on teacher free speech rights. It can be hugely precedent setting. There's just a lot. We, we are, a lot of the stuff is being redefined as being redefined in the courts in ways that I think bear more watching and scrutiny um, uh, than it's had because it will have big, big effects um, like what you're talking about in terms of how political coalitions hold together or don't. Well, lots to talk about two weeks from now when we get together again. Yeah, looking forward to it. Continue to enjoy spring. Enjoy the playoffs. All right. Light the beam, baby. Light that beam. <laughs> See you, Andy. See you, Jed.